Well, good morning, Life Center. Uh, thank you to Pastor Jason, Pastor Lori. And I have to say a huge thank you to the members of, those, of that group, the eight members that Pastor Jason mentioned, because it truly was a beautiful journey, just walking that together and battling with the issue of racism. And you know, I am so delighted, I am so humbled, but I am also so delighted to be sharing with you this morning because my heart is just full, full of love for the church. And I fully recognize how much Jesus loves his church, his bride. And he keeps calling us to come higher. And every time he calls us to come higher, he empowers us to go higher. So I truly believe this message is a call to come higher. And what that means is there's also an empowerment to come higher. So let's go on this journey together. Um, it is a family journey, and I hope that you'll engage it. You know, for the last well over a year, we have seen the tragic loss, the deep sadness, the shock and anger over racism. And really, this has been globally, and sometimes the intensity is so great um, that it fractures relationships. And what we're going to do really is dive into it, because when you have such intensity going through the world, of course, it's also in the church. And so before we go on this journey together, there's three things I want to ask you to do. The first thing I want to ask you to do is recognize that because we're going on a family journey, I'm going to ask you to stay in the train and don't come out until the end of the journey because you will only get a full picture at the end of the journey. And the second thing I'm going to ask you to do is something the Lord asked me to do, and that is listen. And after you have listened, take what you hear into the secret place with the Lord and have a conversation with him and hear what he has to say to you before you respond. Because often, a very quick response is defensive or reactive. And then the final thing I want us to do together is to read a scripture in Luke 18, verse 10 to 14. And it goes like this. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like the tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so let's posture our hearts to receive, and I just want you, in the comfort of your home, just open up the palm of your hands and repeat this after me. Say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Amen. 
Amen. So we're just going to dive right in. And just to set the stage, I'm going to tell you just a little bit about myself because I think that that's going to help you understand the lens from which I see this. And, and then we're going to get quite a bit into the history and the context around racism because we need to understand it so that we know exactly what we need to do about it. And of course, all of this is going to be anchored on the foundation of all truth, which is the word of God. So I was born in Kitchener, Waterloo. Um, my dad went to grad school there, so our family lived there for, for a few years and then moved back to Lagos, Nigeria. And it was actually at a time when the Nigerian currency was higher than the Canadian currency. So there was no incentive um, to stay in Canada. And, and my parents actually wanted to invest into their country. And so when they left, there was obviously this sense of, okay, we won't have to deal with racism, and we'll get into that later in the, in the service. Um, you know, we're going back to our home country. And, and I think it may have been a surprise, not completely, but even though they didn't have to deal with racism, they did have to deal with a different form of discrimination, and that's ethnicism, where one ethnic group thinks they're better than the other ethnic group. And I say that up front to say this. One of the fundamental scriptures for this message is found in Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we all have sin in us. We all have that propensity and that capacity for wickedness. So we need God's intervention. Now, having said all of that, in 2020, the Lord called attention to the sin of racism. And that is what we want to hear from the Lord on today. You know, we don't tell God what to call attention to. We pay attention to what he calls. So fast forward my life. I graduated from university and I'm heading back to Canada for grad school. Living my beloved family, beloved city of Lagos, Nigeria, where I grew up, hustle, bustle, very busy. And... Um, a population of about 14 million people in the core, like in the city proper, and then if you add in the metropolitan and the islands, you're talking about 21 million people. Um, so I pulled together a few pictures just so you get it, you know, an idea of a few things uh, about Lagos. So the first snapshot you're going to see is just in the mainland area, and that's going to come up shortly. And it's just a picture of a a busy street, you know, all the buildings there. The next shot you're going to see is the arts. It's a national arts theater, actually. Nigeria is very rich in performing arts. And now Lagos is actually bordered on one side by the Atlantic Ocean. So the next picture you're going to see is one of the three um, bridges that connects the mainland to the island. And right beside it, you see a picture of a residential area in the island. So I left Lagos, and off I went to another bustling city, and that was London, England, where I visited my two brothers who had moved there um, a couple of years ago. And then off I came to Saskatoon, Canada. You know, there were two distinct memories uh, when I finally arrived to Saskatoon. The first one was I was absolutely convinced that I had arrived at the North Pole. And it was only September. Now, the second thing is, you know, although I observed this progression from Lagos to London to Toronto to Calgary, I still was not prepared to be the solitary person of African descent 
at the John Diffenbaker International Airport in Saskatoon. Um, I will later find out that there was quite a bit of racial diversity, so it was probably just a matter of timing. But I still recall my earliest um, encounter with a racial incident. I was walking into the bank, and this young woman and her daughter were walking out. And her daughter was fixated on me. Her eyes were huge. She was probably about three years old. And when she was fairly close to me, she just raised her hands up, pointing right at my face, and said, Mom, look, she's burnt. <laughs> And I'm not kidding you, I think her mom and her must have had jetpacks because they literally flew out of the bank. She grabbed her and they flew out of the bank. Now, you know, I was somewhat discon disconcerted and I thought, you know, at this point I had heard about some small towns, remember the city I came from? So I had heard that there were, you know, towns of less than a thousand people, which was fascinating to me. And I thought, okay, maybe she came from one of those small towns and had never seen anybody, but not even on TV. So that was, but you know, as much as, as when, I, when I reflected and thought about that, I think what, what I found the most troubling was actually her mom's reaction. Because I thought, I had to wonder, what would she say to her daughter about people of my heritage? If she couldn't even bring herself to just stop and apologize. So much later, I would find out there was a single pervasive story of Africa, and it was unlike other continents. It was a story that showed a part of Africa as being reflective of all of Africa. And it was a story that um, reflected a continent of 55 countries as though it was a single country. And, um, and the stories that were portrayed and the pictures and not what I showed you today, you would not see those types of pictures, I certainly did not see that. I saw a different picture, and I heard different stories. And really, there are three words to capture what was portrayed of Africa. It was poverty, disease, and regressive, or less than. And another thing I observed was that the indigenous peoples were treated as less than Caucasians. Nobody had to tell me that. I just observed it. And I didn't even yet know the history of the residential schools or what was described to me as the cultural genocide of the indigenous people when they went to those schools, which, by the way, were mainly run by Christian churches in the 1990s. You know, every form of discrimination stems from a human perception of being better than another, whether it's based on age, gender, physical abilities, mental, and, of course, race. So what is racism? Well, one simple definition, there are lots of definitions, is that it's the form of discrimination that refers to the ideas or the practices that establish and perpetuate racial superiority or dominance of one group over another. And what makes it so difficult to eradicate? Um, because racism is a systemic problem. It just shows up at the individual level. And so if you keep attempting to address it at the individual level, it would always fall short. Because with the systemic racism, what happens is it becomes embedded into institutions, whether that's education, justice, healthcare. 
And really, this started off when the European nations began to colonize other continents. And so they, said they defined sets of categories, which will then give you access to certain types of privileges, depending on your race. But you know, perhaps the two greatest challenges preventing um, the elimination of systemic racism is indifference and ignorance. You know, indifference shows up when people clearly have no interest in something that doesn't affect their lives or those they love. And ignorance is really a lack of knowledge, right? An awareness of the system and how it doesn't work for everyone. So Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But essentially, I have found that racism exists on this spectrum. And uh, when we watch these events in the news, what we're looking at is an individual daily effect of a systemic problem. And we have a, a slide that's gonna come up here of what the spectrum looks like. It's not meant to be comprehensive. It's actually intentionally meant to be fairly simple. And so at one end of the spectrum, is implicit bias, is often unintentional. And we may have a preference, you know, or an aversion for a group of people because of shared interests, experiences, background. It appears harmless, and a lot of times is unconscious. And I'm gonna give you an example. So, I'm a dog person. I grew up with lots of dogs at home. In our families, we always had dogs. I am not a cat person. As a matter of fact, I am not, when it comes to black cats, I dislike them. Now, my mother is not a cat person, and especially not a black cat person. And my grandmother is not a cat person, or was not a cat person, and especially not black cats. And so you have to wonder, do I truly dislike black cats, or did I just learn to dislike black cats? Because you know the difference between the black cats and the other cats is melanin. They just have a lot of melanin, and that's why they fur as black. And then you get into invalidation where, where people express racism, having ex experienced racism, and it's just casually dismissed or invalidated. And sometimes it gets so bad that the focus of that conversation can shift from the person describing racism to the perpetrator and a strong desire to show that that person is not racist and the entire conversation is lost. And then you have casual degradation, whether it's from racial jokes to just casual insults, you know? Um, as the mother of a, a young man who's six foot four, when he's walking down the street in the evening and he tells me about somebody crossing over to the other side because of him, there's a part of me, and I think we both get it, but there's a part of me that wonders about the moms like me who have to deal with a lot more than somebody crossing over to the other street, but the possibility that their son may not come home. You know, there's the blatant insults, there's racial slurs, hate speech, and then of course you have the physical violence. You know, um, sometimes it can be hard to determine what part of this spectrum do you focus on. There was a publication by the College of Family Physicians in Canada, and it stated that racism in the Canadian healthcare system can be fatal. And they cited a case of Brian Sinclair, 45-year-old indigenous man, who visited the ER in Winnipeg. 
in 2008. And he waited for 34 hours while other visitors in the ER pleaded with the staff to attend to him. And he later died right there in the waiting room after 34 hours, no treatment. You know, Matthew, so, so really what that flags is without violence, sometimes racism can lead to the extreme end of the spectrum. Matthew 5.21 says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. This is Jesus showing us how to deal with a spectrum. Anger and murder appear completely different, but they have the same root and they also have the same endpoint, and that's why the consequences are the same. And this applies to the spectrum of racism. So what does racism look like in Canada? What's the scale of the problem? I mean, obviously, it's very difficult to determine this. You know, people can have, you know, come up with different numbers. There's four of us in our family, and four out of four of us have had multiple racial um, incidents. You know, most of you would know Rex Murphy. Um, Canadian commentator. He recently posed the question um, about racism in Canada. He says, how much are racism and discrimination actually part of the Canadian reality? And this was his conclusion. To any fair mind, Canada is a mature, welcoming, open-minded, and generous country that has been doing its best to be tolerant and welcoming. Well, shortly after that was published, Mr. Daniel Kwan Watson sent an open letter of response to Rex Murphy. And it was one of the most profound letters that I have read on racism, and you can find this letter online. I'll just read you a few snippets from it. To begin with, I was born in Canada and have only ever lived here. You would have a hard time telling whether French or English is my mother tongue. I have been a deputy minister with the government of Canada for over a decade, meaning that I have been given one of the greatest opportunities that any Canadian could ask for in helping to shape the future of this country. I have access to the highest offices in the country, but that is not my whole story. It is generally immediately obvious to most people who meet me for the first time that I am of Asian ancestry. And to put an order of magnitude, I would estimate now in my mid-50s that I have faced something in the order of 10,000 slights, insults, decisions, and actions directed at me based on race. I might be out by a couple of, of thousands in either direction, but not by much. And then he proceeds to list a multiple, multiple incidences ranging from elementary school age to currently. I'll just read you one. I have had a police car race up to me aggressively and at high speed while I crossed the street. Had the officer roll down his window and commence with a long string of swear words asking, what the blank did I think I was doing? I am convinced that he thought I was indigenous. I didn't bend, and I, and I think he realized that there were easier targets to pick on. He left, but not without unleashing another torrent of swear words. I was a federal assistant 
deputy minister at that time, going to get a coffee during the break. And folks, this was pre-pandemic. Right now, in Vancouver, the anti-Asian hate crime has gone up by 717%. You know, during a, a family conversation, my daughter shared a story with us for the first time, and this was in 2020, and with her permission, I shared that story. She was quite young when it happened, and uh, she was hanging out with a, with a friend at a friend's home that she had been so many times. And there were three generations of this beautiful Christian family just having a chat. And the conversation went to the next generation that would be coming. And there was an expression of the fact that they wanted to have the next generation have blue eyes and blonde hair because it was so pretty. And so they, they continued in this discussion and everyone was laughing and just having a blast. And nobody thought about our daughter who was sitting there quietly just listening to this. And you know, I think the reason that happened is actually because they didn't see her color. You see, and the reason I know that is because I have had multiple people say to me, I don't see color. And you know, I know what they mean is actually what they're trying to say. I know people have a problem with race. I certainly am not one of those. I get it. But I actually want you to see my color because I actually quite love it. And you see, if they had seen my daughter's color, that conversation may have been different. But you see, the irony of it is that somehow, miraculously, even though they don't see color, they saw the blue eyes and the blonde hair of their children. So let's take a look at the historical roots of racism. You know, a fundamental part of history for the anti-black racism is slavery. You know, slavery has been described as one of the most tragic, brutal, and barbaric chapters in human history ever. And the church was instrumental in it. So, you know, of all of the horrifying and traumatizing clips I have watched on this, there was one that riveted me and just baffled me. And they were called slave castles and they were based in Cape Coast in Ghana. And these castles, when you get to them, the bottom, it just led into, the bottom floor led into a dungeon, a dark dungeon, where they would hold maybe hundreds up to a thousand slaves. And then when it was time, they would lead them through the door of no return to load them onto ships. And the slaves would journey, the, the slave ships will journey from Africa to Brazil, US, Caribbean, and there was one other destination, the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. But there was one interesting thing about the slave castle. There was one slave castle that even though the dungeon had the slaves at the bottom, on the top level of the castle was a church. And that's where the European slave traders worshiped and prayed and then they led them off into slavery. You know, in 2020, um, a lot unfolded, obviously. Um, part of what happened during those trips where there was a shipwreck and all was lost, the biggest concerns for the slave traders were the ivory, the elephant tusk, and the gold that was looted 
from Africa. And the insurance on these ships actually considered the enslaved people to be part of the cargo. And so in 2020, following the murder of George Floyd, the Lloyds of London Insurance Company apologized publicly for, I quote, its shameful role in the 18th and 19th century transatlantic slave trade. And so here you have 12 million people from several countries in Africa trafficked, enslaved, and more than 2 million of them died in those wrecks. Can you imagine how many generations were lost? You know, slavery was, in, slavery was eventually abolished in 1865, but it left behind it a global trail of inhumane history and a legacy in many countries, including Canada. And that legacy was racism. You see, like every other grave injustice, genuine repentance is critical or a day of reckoning will surely come. Exodus 34 verse 7 says, I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren, and the entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generation. And you know, the idea of being dealt consequences of preceding generations is quite troubling, but it's actually not new. Today, we work the ground or we go to work if we want to eat. And we also have childbirth pains to give birth. And if you trace that back, it goes all the way to Adam and Eve, and we're still dealing with that today. You know, there's a well-known story in John 11 that I want to share with you, verse 39 to 44. And the Lord brought that story to life for me in, in 2020. So... Jesus receives a message that his friend Lazarus is sick. And you know the story. He waited a couple of day, days. And by the time he arrived there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. So I want to pick up the conversation he had with Martha in verse 39. And in this verse, he was standing in front of Lazarus's tomb. It was a cave with a stone in front of it, closing off the entrance. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, Lord, by this time there will be an order, for he has been dead four days. So essentially, his sister, not his friend or his neighbor, tried to dissuade Jesus from opening the, end of the, from opening the tomb. Now, we have the benefit of knowing the story. She didn't. Now, no one was going to question her love for her brother, so she was very comfortable to express this. You know, in 2020, almost 400 years after the first Africans arrived as captives in a ship in 1619, I feel like Jesus said, take away the stone from racism and expose it in its entirety and ugliness. And wouldn't it be so ironic if the world was geared to take away the stone, but it was the sisters and the brothers who said, no, the stench will be too great. You know, Jesus could have spoken to the stone himself, but there was a reason he told the people to take away the stone. Um, but what if the stone 
needs to be removed in order to see the glory. Let's look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. And as Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In other words, take off his grave clothes. You know, when the entire world rolled away the stone from racism, after 400 years, is it any surprise that the stench will fill the globe? You know, although slavery was legally abolished in 1865, um, the people around and involved in the passing of that law did not take off the grave clothes from those they had enslaved. And although they now call them free, the identity of less than and the grave clothes of racism was left on. And so you had systemic racism becoming entrenched and still a problem 400 years later. You know, 400 years is a very long time for an injustice to remain unresolved. But God was on, in those 400 years and he's still sovereign. You know, there are two other well-known 400-year periods in the Bible. Of course, Genesis 15, 13. In this scripture, the Lord actually tells Abraham ahead of time that there was going to be a 400-year period. And he said, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. We're not sure why that is. And I just point that out to say God knew ahead of time. It did not pass him by. And then there's another 400-year period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We call it the intertestamental period. And it's marked by silence, no prophetic word from God. You know, but 400 years of silence is not 400 years of nothing. As a matter of fact, God was preparing something. In fact, the last promise God gave to Malachi in Malachi 4, 5 to 6, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he gave this promise. And then he revealed the fulfillment of this promise after 400 years in the New Testament. And so you see an almost parallel scripture in Luke 1, 17, where again he's talking about reconciling the hearts of the fathers to the children. And that scripture was given to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And scholars believe that everything that happened in those 400 silent years really helped set the stage for the arrival of John the Baptist. And his specific purpose was to prepare the way for Jesus. So who are the fathers and the children in this promise? Let's pause here and go to Acts 17, 
verse 26. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. And so there's been a dispersion and a migration, but we know essentially that all of us, every race, came from one man. And you know, when you think about the fourth and the fifth generation of that generation of slave traders or those who were enslaved, some of them would have a fourth or fifth generation that's actually a completely different race than they were. And so the whole idea of racism is really man-made. But when God gave this promise here about reconciling fathers to children, he was talking about all of us. All of us, every single person that came from that one man. And so what the Lord is really trying to do is bring reconciliation across generations and across races. And so what did John the Baptist preach? Repentance. Repentance. You know, we're literally standing on the verge of a spiritual awakening as a church. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit to bring revival for global harvest of salvations into the kingdom of God before that great and awesome day of the Lord. And the preparation for that is repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. And you know, we've cried out to the Lord for years, and we've said, Lord, we want revival. Show us the stones that we need to move, that we may repent and see your glory. And in 2020, the Lord was pointing at the stone of racism. You know, sometimes when the pain and the shame, the guilt of the past is too great, just extremely uncomfortable or maybe even irreparable, it may seem easier to forget it. But our past is too significant. It can actually derail our future. And that's why Jesus didn't forget it. He redeemed it. And so today, we talk about the most phenomenal event in the history of mankind living and yet to be born, and it happened in the past, 2,000 years ago. You know, redemption is such a beautiful thing because when the miracle of the resurrection happened, no one remembered who killed Lazarus. You know, President Nelson Mandela was unjustly imprisoned for 27 years. He chose forgiveness, and redemption enabled him to overcome appetite and become the first black president of South Africa. So the Lord did not rescind on his purpose for President Mandela. Now Saul, who intensely persecuted and murdered Christians, chose repentance. And it was redemption that enabled him to become Paul, the apostle, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament that you and I hold so close to our heart. The Lord did not rescind on his plan for him either. You know, I believe the glory of God is revealed in repentance and forgiveness. So just imagine if both of those coincided in the church, in our family. So who has the solution to racism? Well, 2 Corinthians 7.14 says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, crave, require as of necessity, that's what it says in the Amplified. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I would hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. And you know, the first three words of, those, of that scripture is critical. 
Because if tells us that it's conditional. And who's the conditional one? God's people. No one else can obtain this promise. You know, if the world had enough insight to publicly express regret, apologize for racism, and take corrective action, should we expect less in the church or more? You know, the world may not know this, but you and I know. We know that the healing of the land is guaranteed by Jesus, but is dependent on the church. Because this scripture is first a scripture of decision by the church, before is the scripture of promise by God. And he always holds his end. So in closing, what can I do with what I heard today? Well, start very basic and simple. Pray. Don't tell the Lord what's on your heart. Ask him to show you what's on your heart or in your heart. You know, he's calling us to personal and corporate repentance, but he's also calling us to personal and corporate forgiveness. And then just listen and engage this issue. You know, none of us is capable of identifying our unconscious biases on our own. And we don't want to pass on anger, ignorance, or wickedness to those behind us. And be intentional about blurring the racial lines because that's man-made. It is not of God. You know, when our daughter was very young, we set out on a mission to find brown dolls to add to her collection of white dolls. And this was when we lived out west. And so our only option at that point was to go to the States. But it was extremely important to us, and so we did it whenever we had to. And what if all of us as parents all made it important together? And what if the first lesson in diversity for our kids was a very simple and informal one where they saw it in their toys even before we talked about it? So young adults, teens, you're serving and leading children, be a true big sister and brother to all those you serve without a hint of favoritism, and see that you make every child feel special, like you have eyes for them. And employers, seek input to intentionally change the composition of your staff. That's what it took for our moms, wives, daughters to be where they are in Canada and in the church. So I close with a word of encouragement to my brothers and sisters of all racialized people groups who have felt the sting and the injustice of racism and sometimes have found it to be a stumbling block. When it's all said and done, there's truly only one enemy and he's not human. And he's looking for us to keep holding onto an offense. But remember who your God is. No created being can stop you from what he purposed for your life. But he absolutely needs you to let go of the offense so that your hands are free to grab a hold of the purpose that he has for you, which will literally propel you into destiny. And to the church, there's a cloud of witnesses cheering on the church of this generation because we're divinely positioned 
and equipped to prevent utter destruction of this land. And as a church, may we together heed this call to go higher. And may repentance and forgiveness usher us into a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So thank you very much for listening. And I will invite Pastor Jason to, uh, to take over the service. God bless you. Well, Toji, on behalf of every single one of us, we honor you today and we receive wholeheartedly the word of the Lord that you brought, but also the personal story and the vulnerability with which you have shared so openly. And so thank you as a minister, minister to minister. Thank you for ministering to us today. Bless you. You know, as a step that we can take as a church, as a response to everything that Toju just shared. This is not the final step. This is just a step. As she was sharing, the word of the Lord is, if my people. And so we want to be a church that responds from a place of repentance and a place, a place of lamenting what has happened. And God, would you use our lives to make a Jesus-sized difference moving forward. And so we both Pastor Lori and I as lead pastors, along with each campus pastor representing not only each campus, but each ministry and every ministry of Life Center. As a unified team, together, we wanted to respond to not only racism, but the conviction of our hearts and this initial step, this next step, to pray together a prayer of repentance. And we are inviting you not to listen in your home, but to open your heart. And together, let's pray this one for another as unto the Lord. Lord, how long will your church be divided along racial lines? How long will the lingering effects of animosity Injustice and pride mark your blessed bride. How long, O oh Lord, will my white brothers and sisters not understand the pain in those who experience, whose experience is different from theirs? How long, O oh Lord, will my minority brothers and sisters struggle with our blindness, broken promises, and injustice? God, grant us the heart to weep with those who weep. Give us empathy and understanding. Create trust where there is wounding. Make your church the united bride you pray for her to be. May we surrender to your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, would you make us one? May we weep together so we might walk together. May the gospel we receive be greater than our divisions. These divisions of mistrust and historical bias run deep, O oh God. Without you, nothing will ever change. But with you, all things remain possible. So Jesus, take us by the hand and lead us to meet each other on this journey. And so together we confess our individual and our collective sin. We repent. 
for where we have bias and for where we have closed our eyes to suffering. Forgive us for where we have benefited from the oppression of our brothers and sisters. Forgive us for the wrong that we have done and the right that we have failed to do. We turn exclusively to God for change and for healing. And we pray for a day when the world will take note of how we love each other. We express the hope that Jesus can transform our hearts, his church, and the city in the mighty matchless name above all names, in the name of King Jesus, together with one voice we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This has been a significant morning for us to look inward, but also to look to one another, to where we are a blessing, but also to where there is brokenness and harm between one another. Yet we want to close in a prophetic moment, including a prophetic prayer, a song, where together all of us in our homes as Life Center, as Canadians, look not only for a moment to one another, but together we look from where our help truly comes from. It comes from the Lord, the maker of all of us, the maker of heaven and earth. And so this morning we are gonna close our service with a prophetic prayer at Life Center and in Canada to say, Lord, joining the heart of our brothers and sisters, would you make us one in every way? So together I invite you, even at home, to stand or to kneel, to adjust your posture in response, in response to what God desires to do and what God is doing. Together, let's sing, Lord, make us one.